Ecclesiastes uh, 7, 1 through 14. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the, the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were these old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who seize the sun, who seize the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one <clears throat> as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful summer morning here in San Diego. Finally, getting out of the Seattle vibes and back into why we pay that sunshine tax, yeah? Uh, just to uh, give you guys a quick update, lots of new folks here, and I want to give you guys kind of where we've been, where we're going, yeah? Just a quick review and a quick look forward to where our community is going to be going for the rest of the year. Um, we have developed two postures this year because we are convinced that there are two primary challenges that the late Western modern, that's you, Christian, you face two very specific challenges in the day and age in which we find ourselves, exhaustion and cynicism. And I'm sure as soon as I say, man, I'm exhausted, you would agree. And as soon as I say, I'm a bit jaded, I feel a little bit cynical about this or that, you might say, so do I. So to counterform Jesus Christ's communities, and in particular, our community, we are developing these two postures throughout 2023. Rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing. Now, rest as a way of being. We spent March training in the practice of Sabbath to develop rest as a way of being for our entire community. Neighbors as a church anchors itself in an every seventh day, 24-hour period of rest and ceasing from all work just to celebrate and delight in God. It is a corner piece, a foundational piece of who we are as a church together. Now, to resist the cynicism of the modern moment, we have spent the last few months and another month or so sitting at the feet of an ancient philosopher king who went by the title Koheleth. And he had everything, money, wealth, women, wine, wisdom. And he said at the end of the day, it's all havel. It's all nothing. It is all meaninglessness and ungraspable vapor. And so as the chief of cynics, we have been sitting at the feet of Koheleth, using his life and his lessons as a sort of sounding board because his struggles, though millennia removed from our struggles, are 
eerily similar to the modern. And so Kohelet's thoughts, they help you and I discern as we make our journey through his teachings, where is our deconstruction process healthy? And where is our deconstruction process unhealthy? Where is our jadedness justified? And where is our jadedness just us simply throwing a fit because God doesn't run the universe the way that we would? Now, as we wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes, that's where we've been, and we get ready to head into the summer. Here at Neighbors, we are convinced that rest and resilience, they are formed most potently in the context of relationships. But not just any relationships. Rest and resilience emerge from relationships of love. And these relationships of love for the Christian community are rooted in the nature of who God is. We're going to go deep this summer into the great mystery of the Christian God who exists as has traditionally been called a trinity. A trinity. Three persons but one God. Our God actually is an eternal community of love. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Christians and all of creation, we have our very existence out of this eternal dance of joy and delight between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So we're going to spend all summer in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, learning from the Apostle John, who called himself the Apostle of Love. Doesn't that sound nice? And we want to learn what it means to exist in the city of San Diego as a community of love, all summer long, a community of love. As fall comes and we wrap up the summer, prayer friends. And I mean heartfelt, pour your heart out, sacrificial, intentional, unceasing, as St. Paul called it, prayer, is the only way by which God's people will solidify heaven on earth, in us and through us, as we yield in prayer to our God. And so we intend to pray through the fall, pray in rest as a way of being, pray in resilience as a way of doing, so this fall, look forward to it. We're planning on doing another four-week training mod module in partnership with Practicing the Way. We're going to do a four-week training module in October uh, with John Mark and the crew, as well as probably Communion Church joining us, maybe one or two other churches joining us for that this fall. Four-week training module on prayer. And for the first time ever, Neighbors is going to launch. We're doing a 12-hour prayer room at Pentecost this year, but we're going to try to do a 24-hour prayer room. So get ready to sign up for a 2 o'clock in the morning slot. That's not going to be fun, but you'll get extra points in heaven. 24-hour prayer room this fall, and then we're going to do a 10 to 12-week deep dive series into the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, as it's traditionally been called, entitled Teach Us to Pray. So everybody got it? Everybody caught up? Rest is a way of being, resilience is a way of doing, summer of love, becoming a community of love in the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then this fall we're going to talk about prayer, we're going to be trained in prayer, and we're actually going to pray as we set up for 2024, unless the Lord returns, which would be absolutely wonderful. Let's pray, and let's get into our text for the morning. I want to just invite you as we close our eyes here, as is the tradition in Western Christianity when we pray, could you just discern now, I know we're in a crowd of people and we're in a Sunday morning where there's distractions and noises, but if you could just discern sensations in your actual body. Just take a moment here. There's this misnomer within folk Christian theology that we are a soul trapped in a body, but in fact, we are holistic beings. We are bodies, souls, one integrated whole. And so your emotions matter. Feel in your body sensations of joy, shame, fear, awkwardness. Maybe this feels a bit uncomfortable for you. Just feel that. The emotions, the sensations. 
in your guts, in your chest, up around your neck. Father, speak to us today. I pray for healing in this room, even this morning as you give me the sense of you have anointed me this morning to set the captives free, to liberate those who are chained to depression, anxiety, shame, loneliness, hurt, woundedness. Today is a day of liberty for these souls, for these bodies. Exalt yourself in your church by healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, had a little touch point with the body here. How do you personally handle negative emotions? What do you think about your negative emotions? Whenever things like sadness or anger or loneliness come up, what do you do with them? Now, historically, American culture in particular has suppressed emotions, especially for males, especially males in certain fields, military, sports. Males are to suppress their emotions. They're not to feel their emotions. And it's been more of a a feminine ideal to be able to express your emotions. But we find ourselves living in a fascinating time where what we feel, especially when it comes to our feelings of negative emotions, our culture considers of utmost importance. I would say that now, rather than suppressing our feelings, we live in an age where emotional impulsivity actually equals authenticity. This is the way that we think about emotions socially. And there's been this massive transition to the time in which we live where feelings have become paramount. Feelings have become the most important thing about what we believe is the good life. How did this happen? 1966, brief sociology lesson. Class, 1966, cultural sociologist Philip Reif. Fundamental landmark work. All the books I read quote this guy. I haven't actually read the book because it's gnarly. (laughs) But all the guys that I do read quote this guy. He published a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in it, Reef was observing that modern society is very different from the way that ancient societies collectively define the good life. He described three categories of humanity that existed throughout the centuries. Reef said that the most common throughout human history, human, was what he called the religious man. The religious man said the good life is about obedience to God. It has nothing to do with your internal feelings. Now, with the scientific and the industrial revolutions, prosperity began to increase and transformed religious man slowly into what Reef called economic man. The good life became about economic success, and happiness meant having more. Now, as personal prosperity became the goal, Western societies in particular, which are extremely affluent, began to turn inward on themselves, and we became hyper-individualistic. An economic man, as we turned inward to ourselves, ever so slowly and ever so subtly became what Reef called psychological man. Now, according to Reef, psychological man defines the good life as the internal emotional harmony that we all strive for. The good life is when you are personally fulfilled, when you have a sense of wholeness. And not only when you have a sense of wholeness, the good life is when you are able to express that sense of wholeness to everyone around you and they accept what you are expressing to them and applaud it and receive it and love it. Culturally speaking, in the broadest terms, I recognize I'm broad brushing. That's what sociology does. It broad brushes. The good life is based on how you and I feel. That's how we think of it culturally. In the past... We humans had our priests and our pastors to guide us into obeying God and finding the good life. 
And the good life was external to God, not contingent upon our internal experiences. Then slowly, prosperity took the place of our priests and pastors, and we began to look to material gain for the good life. And then we got it. But because the church and pastors and priests and even money in some regards have failed, it has failed most modern people in providing this sense of the good life And because we have slowly become so oriented around our internal world, we have begun to subtly turn our therapists into pseudo-messiahs. We hope that sitting on that couch might save us from our existential angst and from our emotional turmoil and hence provide for us the good life. We swim in what Frank Furiati called therapy culture. Now, take a deep breath with me, please. I want to thread this needle very, very carefully. The fact that we focus on our feelings in modern society is actually a really, really good thing. I would argue that the most healing thing about therapy culture is that mental health issues are simply part of the fabric of our conversation instead of stigmatized and hidden as they have been in the past. My therapist said, that is a common refrain in conversations over cups of coffee. I personally have a therapist. I've had multitudes of therapists because I need lots of help. Multitudes of therapists throughout my history, and I have dear friends that are working in that field or they are pursuing that career. There is a genuine need for real trauma to be explored with a neutral listener who is trained to give mental and emotional cues towards healing. But in our society's pursuit of the good life, where emotional impulsivity equals authenticity, and in our society's pursuit of the good life defined as emotional well-being, the pendulum, in my humble opinion, has swung too far in particular sectors, and it is swinging too far in particular contexts. For example, what once was just considered normal discourse in human society, normal points of disagreement, be that politically, be that philosophically, those normal points of disagreement in some sectors, particularly on progressive college campuses, are now labeled as traumatic, triggering, and violent because you disagree with what I might believe or what I might be convicted of. For some of us, we've been trained that any subtle hint of unhappiness in our life is a sign that something is terribly, cataclysmically wrong, and it must be addressed in depth and at depth at length. Our culture has come to believe the lie that the good life is found only in the total absence of anything negative, especially negative emotions. And because the church, that's us, because we swim in this therapy culture, we swim in this culture of the absence of negative emotions, the teaching of the church has sometimes unconsciously and sometimes consciously, sometimes implicitly and sometimes explicitly in certain sectors of the church, turned Jesus into nothing more than a feel-good therapist who saves us from our bad feelings rather than the wrath of God. And that is not true, friends. The lie that we're being sold in this modern moment around our feelings is a bill of goods. The lie that we're being sold, that the good life is the absence of anything negative, in particular negative feelings, that is an impossibility in a broken world. And the words of Koheleth, this teacher, he seeking the absence of all negative emotions, this pursuit, this, this pursuit of a vapor, of a fog, that's exactly what Koheleth said it, says it is. For you to believe the lie that one day you will co- be completely free from any sort of negative emotion, Koheleth would say that's Havel. That's emptiness. It's meaninglessness. You're grasping for smoke. You're chasing the wind. 
So our teaching text for the morning, this is so interesting to me. The teaching text consists of seven different specific statements, and they all begin with the Hebrew word tov. Would you please say the word tov with me? Tov. Hebrew scholars, all of you, tov. Tov is most literally translated as good. Tov equals good. Seven statements around goodness or the good life. Because Koheleth had made it his life's aim to find the good life and hadn't been able to find it. But he still wants his readers to pursue the good life. But what he says constitutes, what he says makes the good life is actually a shock to our cultural emotional system. Let me just say up front as we get into this text, none of us would want Koheleth as our personal therapist. Believe me. Just imagine this scene. You're laying there on the couch with Koheleth, and he's asking you questions, and you begin to pour out your heart in vulnerability, and you're sharing your existential angst and your frustrations and your, and your sadness, and, and you pause to wipe the snot and the tears from your face, and you look to Koheleth expectantly. You're waiting for him to begin comforting you as you explore your fear of death and possibly what happened to you when you were six, etc. all the things that we do on the therapy couches. But instead, Koheleth says this, Ah, ah, this is very good. Your death is actually going to be the best day of your life. (laughs) Even better than the day you were born. You know what I want you to do? That frustration you feel in your life right now? I want you to foster it. I want you to intensify it. Stay with it. That anger that you feel, it's way better than laughter and delight. Hold on to that sadness because when you're sad, then you're living in a state of reality, and that's better than living deluded. We would be like, ah, you're fired. Give me my money back. I don't feel any better about my life right now. Okay. How do you think of your negative emotions? How do you handle them? Koheleth is going to give us some surprising ways to think about the negative things that we experience in this life, particularly in our internal world, starting with reputation and uh, remembering our death. Remembering our death. This is a constant theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Koheleth says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. At the very roots of emotional well-being, our internal structures, is the way that we perceive other people's thoughts about us. Modern psychology recognizes that from our infancy, our emotional structures are being built by experiences first with our parents and eventually with our peers, other humans around us, as we develop the ability to cognitively be aware of other humans. And so every school of psychology, attachment theory, interpersonal neurobiology, object relations theory, cognitive behavioral therapy, positive psychology, all of their protocols, all of their healing therapeutic protocols, they all acknowledge that the way that you and I perceive how others perceive us is central to the therapeutic process of healing. They're all helping us orient ourselves in a healthy way in the way that we think about others thinking about us. Did that all make sense? Why is this the case? It is because human beings were designed, we were designed by God to be loved and to be applauded. Our physical and our spiritual beings are literally neurally hardwired for a sense of acceptance and a sense of security from others. Koheleth recognizes this a million or millennia ago, and he says, Tov shem shemen tov. It's this play on Hebrew words. I love it. Tov shem shemen tov. A good name is better than good oil. That's what he's doing there. A good name is better than good perfume. To be respected, to be honored, to be loved, that's better than sweet-smelling perfume. Or as Proverbs says it in 22.1, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. The problem is 
We were designed to be honored and respected and loved by God, and that emotional system is now corrupted by sin. It's broken. And so in our separated state from God, we now make human opinion of us everything, and it always fails us because human opinion is always broken. Now, social media and big tech have capitalized on these spiritual and primal needs and have literally hijacked the dopamine systems in our brains, leaving us addicted and distracted. And the research is just now, over the last 10 years, the research is just now beginning to empirically show that we are more lonely, less connected, and more depressed than we have ever been as a society. There's a psych professor out here at SDSU. Her name is Jean Twenge. I just finished her book called iGen. Incredible read for you super nerds that want to get into some crazy statistics. She calls Gen Z iGen, the internet generation. And she says that Gen Z, you kids are suffering from what she calls an epidemic of anguish. The stats for Gen Z on depression and loneliness and suicide, they are. As I read the book, I found myself getting on my knees in terror for my kids. And the research, yes, it is still in its preliminary state, but there is not a single sociologist or psychologist worth their salt that does not recognize that screens and social media and the rewiring of the brain and the warping of human-to-human -human interaction is doing severe damage to our kids and to us. And I would say as well that there's something shifting within the younger generation. Aaron brought this up in the teaching notes. As culture believes that the good life is the absence of any sort of negative emotions... One of the contributing factors, I think, to Gen Z's, I agree with Aaron completely, one of the contributing factors to Gen Z's sort of epidemic of anguish is there's this impossible ideology that they're being told to chase. You can be completely free of all negative emotions combined with this egregious separation from God. And so the conclusion for many young people right now is the good life in any fashion isn't even a possibility. I'm never going to get there. I am convinced that Gen Z is the generation that's going to see a massive, mass usher in a massive renewal of the Western church. I'm utterly persuaded of it. I've been praying for it alongside other leaders my age for two and a half decades now. I have unbelievable amounts of hope and joy for the, the wisdom, the, the stability, the, the, the grace, the sensitivities of this generation that is up and coming. And I also see that Satan is trying to get a stranglehold on your souls. A stranglehold. And so we have to ask Koheleth, what do we do about this need for reputation, this addiction to screens, the constant dopamine hijacking of our brains? How do we get to this place where reputation with God is more important than reputation with others? Remember, he's a terrible therapist. He says, remember that you're going to die. Oh, God, or excuse me, oh, Koheleth, what do I do with my negative emotions? And what do I do that I'm not liked? And what do I do that I don't feel accepted? And what do I do that I don't feel honored? I don't feel respected. I don't feel loved. And this happened to me when I was a kid. And there you go. You're crying. And then... The day of death is better than the day of birth, Koheleth says. Remember, you're going to die. You're fired, Koheleth. That doesn't make me feel any better. How in the world does that help? In one sense, Koheleth does go a bit dark here. He gets pretty gnarly throughout this book. He's frustrated by life. He's worn out by the rat race. None of it makes any sense to him anymore, especially trying to find value and worth and reputation amongst humans. And so he throws his hands in the air and he says, look, don't forget, all of this is going to end one day. We're all going to die. Now, if you take Koheleth's thoughts and you put that into our context, our emotional context of social media, 
In our pursuit of fame, something like 73% of Gen Z answers the questions, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be famous. <laughs> That's crazy. Our addiction to being seen or unseen, or excuse me, seen on screens, it is very sobering for us. And I realize how difficult this is when you're 20 and you're healthy and all your bones and tendons don't creak and ache every single day when you wake up. I know how impossible this feels. But Koheleth invites you to the liberating power of remembering that no matter how many followers you had on Instagram, you are going to die. It's going to end. The phone and your reputation, it's all going to go into a grave and be utterly forgotten. None of you in this room are going to be remembered. That is liberating. That is liberating. That is Koheleth's counsel to us. Remember reality that we are on our way already to a deathbed and that our reputations are already buried. Remembering, though, in that moment that God actually does see us beyond this life, and one day we will be face-to-face -face with him, it lessens that burdensome load of feeling obscure and unseen and not accepted in this life because God does see you, God does applaud you, God accepts you, God loves you. Great, Dan, how do we actually experience that? You actually have to put your phone away and practice secrecy. I feel the twitches in the eyes. I feel the anxiety rising in the room. You have to. You have to. Pastor hat off, father hat on. You have to do this. You have to put your phone away and practice secrecy. You have to intentionally turn from these faulty ways of building up your emotional well-being that have hijacked your dopamine system and addicted you to a vapor, to Havel, and you have to intentionally learn how to let your body rest in the quiet, unseen places, simply in the presence of the Lord with no phone, no likes, no knowing what's going on, learning JOMO, the joy of missing out, instead of FOMO, the fear of missing out. I realize how terrifying this is. In secret places of solitude, with only a Bible on our laps and the Spirit and maybe some water, quit eating for a couple days, that's where you're reacquainted with God's love for your soul, for your being. And that is where he begins to heal the ears that have been deafened by the high decibel screaming of a society unhooked. And so we begin to hear more clearly there in secrecy, in solitude, still small voices of his delight in us. And it's through secret solitude and intimacy with God where you don't go out into the deserts to take pictures and say, hey, everybody, look, I'm out in the deserts by myself, post You have to get off these screens. Oh, my kids are going to have it with me after this, but I'm getting up on the soapbox. Here we go. You've got to get off the phones. You have to. And my kids know this, and my kids are super wise. But each and every single one of us, adults too, listen, you adults in this room, your kids are watching you. They are taking into their minds this all day long. And you could learn to practice secrecy and intimacy with them by actually just putting the phones away. And so as we practice secret solitude and intimacy with God, we slowly become more secure. It's like our name and reputation slowly in the deeps, our honor becomes rooted in him so that then we can go out and selflessly love. And for some of us, not me, I've had to get completely off of all social media because my brain just can't handle it. It just literally cannot handle it. My addictive personalities are through the roof. And so I just have to say, that is not for me, and I'll find out what's going on through my friends and through my staff and through, my, through the people that are around me. 
But as you build your security in who you are in God, then you can slowly begin to go back out into the world and you learn that you can love people regardless of what they think of you. And not in any dark way, in the background of all of this, friends, as you're swiping, looking for likes, posting, just remember, this is not going to be remembered. Nobody's going to remember this. Nobody. Not even my mom. It does not matter. What matters is, as I swipe for the glory of God, I look to him to be built up and secure. That point took way too long. Lamentation instead of distraction. Terrible therapist, Goheleth. He says, hold on to your sadness here. Lamentation instead of distraction. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So what Koheleth does here is he contrasts two houses, one of feasting and one of mourning, and he counsels the living, that's us, to not avoid the house of sadness, which sounds ludicrous in our modern minds. For, for Koheleth in his day, feasting was a means of distracting from the obvious freight train of death that was coming for all of us. And Koheleth said, I would rather you face the fear of death square on. I want you to feel its sadness, and I want that sadness to shape the good life, rather than pretending by an overabundance of food that all is well and all of this will never end. Friends, we have lost our ability in the West to lament as a society. We don't know how to lament and cry and be in the house of mourning. I love living in the United States. I love what we have here. But the American vision is one of strength and victory and prosperity. And sadness we view as a pollutant to our pursuit of position and power and pleasure. In the church, we are just as lost when it comes to lament. Most of us arrived here, me included, come to Sunday morning with the hopes that our hearts will be lifted, that when Shua hits that minor key, just right, a little tear just bursts from the eye, just perfectly, smiles on our faces. I hope Dan says something a little bit funny that makes me laugh just a little bit, but not too heavy, so then I can go home and talk about it and be spiritual, but not overweighted by it. You know, we want all of this stuff to be just right. But we don't know, as a community how to just sit in the silence and simply feel our sadness about the state of our souls and the state of our world together. We don't know how to do it. Can you guys imagine spending 15 minutes of worship in silence just being still with the state of our souls and the brokenness of this world? I would lose my mind. I would sit right there and lose my mind to try to do that because we don't know how. We haven't been trained to do this. We haven't been practicing this. But to learn to sit with our sadness individually and collectively this is one of the most important markers of moving into the maturity and the likeness of Jesus. I've said this before. I'm convinced that Jesus was absolutely the most joyful human on the planet while he was here. But what we have in the records of his life was a man acquainted with grief, a man who wept over death, a man who faced it head on, and a man who lamented the loss of sin and brokenness in this world. And only after all of that did he resurrect in victory. And so you and I, we will never have full, what we long for, robust happiness without actually feeling and knowing our sadness to the depths. And to do that, we have to secretly be still in the solitude with our sadness in the silence. I have learned over this past year to sit in the mornings, deep in the quiet, and just sit there and say to him like a little kid, I'm scared. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not scared. I'm scared. I'm scared of you. I'm scared of what you may or may not do. I'm hurting, I feel insecure, I feel embarrassed, I feel humiliated. I just sit there and feel all of these things. I get to feel that, all the feels with my father in the secrecy. I'm not sharing it with anybody. Learning to let the tears flow there 
Not so that I just stay there and that becomes my identity where I'm just Mr. Depressed, Eeyore, down all day long, but to feel that in the hopes and as a means of enhancing my joy and that I'm becoming like Jesus. I'm acquainted with his brokenness in this world and I know resurrection is where I'm going because he resurrected. And beyond this, and this is a big one, we must learn to lament in community. For those of you that call Neighbors Church home or those of you that are now praying about making this your church family, in some measure... Again, I'm threading this needle very carefully, but in some measure, modern therapy is taking the place of mentorship and spiritual friendship in the Christian community. It is. It is. We're either too distracted and too busy to be committed to a community at the level of time and commitment that is required to build safe relationships where you can actually open up with a group of people. We're too busy or too distracted or too uncommitted to that group for that to actually foster that kind of community. Or it's just too vulnerable. Guys, I get it. I'm an introvert. Sharing some of the pain of your life with a group of people is so vulnerable. It is so terrifying. But when we courageously and intentionally commit, when we learn to bear one another's emotional burdens with one another, the joy that rises from that is immeasurable. I am in no way, shape, or form dissuading therapy or therapists in any way. I said I have a therapist and I have a spiritual director and I still go. You should keep those people. Keep going. But you need to understand that as a follower of Jesus, you will never heal as deeply as God intends apart from this countercultural kingdom way of doing therapy, which is with, an, with each other. It's with each other. You're just going to have to pray through that. Group's going to be fun this week. I got a feeling there's going to be a lot of tears. It's going to be great. But let's set the table. We're doing this together. We're learning to be together in this. The heart of the wise in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. What Kohela says here is that fools distract, but wise people are willing to listen to the tears of grieving people. Not just gloss it over. Oh, you're grieving? Well, you know, God's good. God's in control, so don't worry about it. Let's move on. Praise God. Hallelujah. That's not the way the church should lament. The church should be able to sit and learn to sit in the awkward snot flowing out of the nose, tears bawling, convulsing, crying, and just hold that person. Be with them. You should be that person who gets to a place where you feel strong enough and courageous enough to do that in a community where you can be surrounded and have people pray for you. The grieving rebuke the frivolity and the shallowness of our modern moment. And wise people sit with it. And so while it may be counterintuitive to each of us, we are to go to our therapist not to be rid of our negative emotions, but to learn how to sit with them. We are to go to our community not to be rid completely of any sort of negative internal experience, but to learn how to orient our souls around these broken places. We don't go into these places with the hope of sadness being alleviated forever. Wisdom learns to sit in the house of mourning, learning to feast in the house of mourning. Friends, in this world, we must learn to feast in the house of mourning with our sad friends and that subtle smile that creeps upon our faces when through our tears in the snot and we say to each other, and resurrection's coming. None of this will be remembered at the resurrection. Finally, grimness for true gladness, Koheleth says, is the better way when it comes to our negativity. Frustration, Koheleth says, is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. 
Uh, Robert Alter, he's one of my favorite Hebrew scholars in all of the history of Hebrew scholars. And he, he translates this back half of this verse, by a scowl, the heart is gladdened. And the reason that this so touched my life is when my kids were little, and maybe even to this degree, uh, to, to, the, to this moment now in my life, I tend to, when I'm reading or studying or praying, get a quite serious face. And if you ever catch me just thinking, just you know, I, may, I could be thinking about the waves. I could be thinking about a burrito. I could be thinking about the sermon for next week. Whatever it may be, for some reason, I get this very scrunched up, like, very intense scowl. And, and when I was little, my kids used to come up to me, and they called it a meaner demeanor. Daddy has a meaner demeanor. And when they were really little, they would see me sitting on the couch, and I would be focused on a burrito really intensely. And they would come up to me, and they'd rub their, their forehead right here, or they'd rub their thumb on my forehead, and they'd say, Daddy get rid of that meaner demeanor, and they'd wipe my forehead. But a scowl is the way that a heart is gladdened. Sitting there thinking about burritos and the people that are beloved to me and knowing that this is all going to end, that, that creates some, some furrow in the brow, if you will. And it should. It should. The point of this passage is that troubled faces are reflecting the reality of where we are in a broken world. And it shows that we are not living in some sort of shallow, superficial denial of what's happening. And I realize how counterintuitive this is for a modern church like ours, especially for affluent people. Joshua just nailed this in the teaching notes. He says, when we have no significant vision or experience of pain to measure our pleasure against, what we do is we default to measuring joy against the affluence of others. That's what we consider suffering in the Western society. The, the, the blessing of others is our suffering. At least for me. Maybe I'm the only schmuck in the whole room, but that's the way it is. And this leaves us feeling so empty. But as a people, when we begin to consider matters such as death, as serious as death, we slowly begin to, de to develop a severe or a sad facial expression because our angst is in alignment with the reality instead of an empty comparison. But it's because of that furrowed brow, that sobriety, that reality, that then we are better equipped to live gladly the life that we have been given, right here in the present. The final thing that Koheleth addresses is past, present, and future. Past, present, and future around our emotional dispositions. Much of our emotional woe, and the older you get, the worse this is. It comes from longing for the past or regretting the past. Longing for the past. I was out in the gym with the boys the other day. They're half my age, and they're just throwing weight around like nothing. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I can't even get out of a chair without my knees creaking and hurting. Wishing. Oh, man, I wish I was 23 again. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. Don't you guys remember when I'm a child of the 90s? The 90s were the best. I wish it was the 90s again. Kohala says there's no point in any of that because it is unwise to wish for what you cannot change now. Do not say... Why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. So much of this discrepancy between generations, and this is, again, Joshua, is the idealization that the past, oh, the church was this in the past. I wish we were there. Oh, our country in the past was this. I wish it was that. Oh, my family in the past. Oh, my life in the past. It was this. It was this. French priest and intellectual A.G. Sertrelanges, he calls this the being a pallbearer of the past. 
And then he goes on to admonish his readers that the greatest moments in life, in the history of the church, in the history of your life, in the history of our country, the greatest moment of this life is not the past. It's one that you're living in right now. This is it. So Kohelet's counsel is don't disparage the present moment by anxiously dimming the future or by longing for days that are already dead. Surrender to what is present. That is the key to the good life and internal peace. Notice what Kohelet says, Ecclesiastes 7. Consider what God has done. We're almost done. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. I remember in the earliest days with my spiritual director, and he was a clinical therapist as well. And I would snot coming out of my nose, crying, sharing my existential age. I wish it was this rich. I'm worried about my future, this. In this present moment, this is going on, that's going on, this hurts, and that hurts. And he would always just very calmly look me straight in the eye and say, Dan, whatever is, is the teacher. Whatever is, is the teacher. In the earliest days, I'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I don't know what that means. But as I meditated on it, as I thought through it, as I began to like, look at my life and the pain and the issues and, the, and all of the stuff that was happening in those days especially, I would say, okay, if this is the teacher, what's it teaching me? And through time, I began to realize that Rich was inviting me to look at the present moment and to learn from it, to just learn to be with it. Instead of always trying to engineer the universe to my will, just to look at what was happening in my body and around me externally and surrender to it. And Kohala, it's clear. Surrender to the good times, guys. So many of us miss the happy times because we're so worried that happiness is going to leave us. We're worried about when the happiness is going to go. Brene Brown says joy is the most vulnerable of all emotions because it feels like this fragile house of cards. When you're actually in a joyful place, you're like, okay, when's the carpet going to be pulled out from underneath me? When's it going to be over? Oh, what a tragic way to live. Kohelet says, if you're happy right now and things are good, live it up. Put a skip in your step. Put a smile on your face. This world needs more smiles on the faces, more skips in the steps in the midst of the house of mourning, sadness. Feasting with friends who are sad and smiling because we know something better is coming for us. And as far as fixating about the future, Kohelet just keeps it real here. He says, no one can discover anything about their future. Guys, if the last three or four years have not taught you that your future plans are a house of cards in a hurricane, then you have missed one of the most important lessons God has given his church in the last 2,000 years, as far as I'm concerned. God bless COVID. Thank you. Thank you for the tensions and the disruption, the economic uncertainty. Thank you for the fear. Thank you for the rumors of wars and wars. Because at the very least, it's taken your people and we've all gone, oh my gosh, I'm not in control. That is the most healthy, joy-giving place you could possibly be this morning. You and I do not know what tomorrow will bring. And so we are not to point to fear or anxiety because we are children of God. When we think about our future, it's an invitation for us to trust in his daily bread, not yesterday's and not tomorrow's. And as we wrap up and come to communion this morning, I'm certain Jesus spent a lot of time with Koheleth on his lap there as he was studying the scriptures in secret, silent places. Our king, the truest human, in secrecy, the most famous human that has ever existed, Jesus of Nazareth, spent the majority of his earthly life in secrecy, disconnected with his father. And I think he had Koheleth. I think he had the book of Ecclesiastes. They didn't have books, but for the sake of illustration, 
I think he had the scroll rolled out there in that secrecy, in that place. I think he meditated on Kohalith's words that sadness is going to lead to a scowl that leads to true gladness. I think Jesus considered the cross and his death, and he knew his death would be remembered for you. I think that Jesus spent his whole life feasting in the house of mourning. I can see Jesus sitting around the fire with his disciples telling knock-knock jokes and going to bed and weeping his eyes out, knowing that his friends were going to reject him. I can see Jesus with his closest friends, glasses of wine, cheers, Shabbat Shalom, another day of rest as a way of being. And the man laying his head down and feeling the grief and the weight of a world that was about to be embedded in his very being for you and I. Neighbors Church, I'm pleading with you to intentionally enter the secret places for your souls, please. But not only for your souls, for the well-being of our city and a society unhinged, desperate, a generation enduring an epidemic of anguish. We are the souls. We are the solace. We are the healing balm. And so may, may, may neighbors, may this place be a house of mourning. How counterintuitive is that? Where when we greet each other on Sunday morning, behind the smile is a very sober and grim reality that this handshake could be the last one. So I'm going to shake it with all the vim and vigor that I've been given in this life. This look in the eye could be the last one. This could be the last time I ever get to teach you. I could die this afternoon. This could be the last time I ever see you in this life. I don't want to regret missing these moments with you, with my wife, with my kids. But don't you see, it's these tears that make life life until he comes and reigns and rules in full. Live into that reality and be gospel heralds of that hope and that truth and that peace and that joy. It's what you've been commissioned to. Don't miss it. Would you all stand with me and we'll read our liturgy for the morning? <clears throat> and so we read, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all humankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Fathers, we come to the communion table this morning. May this house of